Welcome to the official podcast for the Australian Podiatry Association. This is where we talk about issues affecting podiatrists and their patients, as well as a range of broader issues. My name is Nello Marino. I'm the CEO of the Australian Podiatry Association, and today's episode is a little different. Recorded recently, we're excited to welcome Professor Hilton Menz as he interviews Professor David Hunter, rheumatology clinician and researcher and keynote speaker at the upcoming Australian Podiatry Conference. Join Hilton and David as they discuss osteoarthritis, the assessment and treatment pathway, and the impact this condition has on patients. For those interested in having a close look at the Australian Podiatry Conference program and speakers, head to www.podiatry.org.au where you will find all the details for registration and more. Now, over to Hilton and David. Hi, everyone. My name's uh, Hilton Menz. I'm Professor and Research Fellow at uh, the Trove University in Melbourne. And I'm also one of the ambassadors for the Australian Podiatry Association Conference, which will be held virtually this year between July 3 and 17. Now, one of my jobs as the ambassador is to give you some ideas as to who's going to be coming along to present at the conference um, who might be going to the conference and also what sort of benefits you might expect from attending the conference yourself. So today we have one of our keynote speakers, Professor David Hunter. So to get the ball rolling, uh, David, if you could just give us a quick snapshot of your academic background, uh, the sort of work that you do and the sort of patients that you see. Fantastic, Hilton. Thanks very much for having me along and looking forward to the conference uh, later this year. I'm a professor of rheumatology and medicine at the University of Sydney. I'm primarily based at the Royal North Shore Hospital, um, and so a, what's called a clinical researcher, which is an unusual breed of person who tries to both work as a clinician, researcher, and educator. I've done a specialist qualification through the College of Physicians in Rheumatology, uh, a PhD, uh, which was focused on osteoarthritis, um, and have since worked as an academic, both in Australia and overseas. It uh, was based in Boston for about 10 years, but primarily focused on clinical research into osteoarthritis and do quite a lot of uh, clinical trials, epidemiologic investigation, uh, health services research and translational work. Um, and also work as a clinician um, and really enjoy that varied aspect of the work. Um, and in particular, the patient population that we have the privilege to work with. And the patients that I tend to see in my clinical practice and obviously in my research tend to have osteoarthritis, whether that be knee, hip, hand, or elsewhere, including the feet. Excellent. Um, so a lot of your work is focused particularly on osteoarthritis. Now, historically, it's been considered a condition or a disease of cartilage, but it's now more widely understood that it includes a whole range of other structures and tissues. Now, what effect do you think that understanding has had on the way we actually manage osteoarthritis? Yeah, there have been big changes in our understanding, or at least the way we define the disease over the last, particularly the last decade. And the current definition of osteoarthritis is a disease of the whole joint, meaning it can affect any of the synovial joint tissues. And it presents with a person complaining of pain and limited function. And I think the importance of that is that 
cartilage itself is directly aneural, meaning it can't be directly responsible for why a person presents with pain. And there's lots of other tissues and reasons why a person might have pain. Um, and cartilage is definitely not one of them. But I think it's really important we think about this as a, a whole joint and a whole person disease, uh, which takes into account that biopsychosocial construct that many people talk about where, you know, the, the mental health, the comorbidity, the socioeconomic status, as well as what's happening to the joint organ are all really important when we're thinking about why a person presents with pain and limited function. And that understanding has influenced, uh, you know, my management of the disease. I think hopefully many, many people's um, management as well in targeting not just a tissue, but really trying to treat that whole person and intervene in a way that's going to be meaningful to them longer term. Fabulous. Now, I'm sure you'll be covering the, the full range of different treatment options for osteoarthritis when you uh, provide a presentation at the conference. But I just wanted to pick out a, a couple of specific uh, interventions, if that's okay. And the first one is, of course, intra-articular cortisone injections. Now, the evidence would suggest that um, these are used fairly widely, but the benefits are fairly short-term. So, in your opinion, do you think cortisone is overused in the management of osteoarthritis? And the second part of the question is, is there any evidence there's some detrimental effects for repeated use of cortisone? Yeah, really big and important, and I think at the moment a very controversial question, and I guess just to outline the current status of the evidence, and this is consistent whether you're looking at the College of GPs guidelines or the Osteoarthritis Research Society guidelines, is that most of those guidelines will advocate for a one-off injection of steroid in the acute situation, um, and the mean duration of effect that has been seen both in Cochrane and other reviews would suggest you're going to get an average about two to four weeks of symptomatic improvement if we compare that on average uh, to the typical comparator being uh, saline or salt water. Um, as you've suggested, though, there's a lot of recent work going into looking at potential downsides of repeat administration of corticosteroids, which is a very, very frequent occurrence in clinical practice. You know, not infrequently, a person will rock up every three to four months for their repeat steroid shot, and that's oftentimes the only treatment that they're getting. Um, but analyses both from observational studies and from clinical trials are now suggesting that repeat administration of uh, corticosteroids into joints is associated with more rapid progression of osteoarthritis, measured both uh, by joint space width on the radiograph, but also MRI and some other parameters. And rare instances that allude to the fact that uh, it may also be associated with uh, some other joint structural pathologies at presentation, including uh, insufficiency fractures and osteonecrosis. So it's not without harms. And I think more recent guidance would suggest that, sure, the one-off injection may be okay, but don't set someone up on a treadmill for repeat administration over time. Thanks for that. And I guess a uh, follow-up question related to intra-articular uh, treatments. Uh, we did a trial uh, ourselves of visco supplementation for foot osteoarthritis, and it wasn't effective. It was no more effective than saline. Um, what's been your experience, and what does the evidence say about both visco supplementation, but also things like platelet-rich plasma injections? 
So viscose supplementation has been around for a long, long time, and the best current evidence would suggest that that has no clinically meaningful benefit over and above salt water for knee, for hip, for base of thumb, or for foot osteoarthritis. So most guidelines don't advocate it on the basis that it's expensive, potentially harmful, and doesn't provide a clinically meaningful benefit. Um, my clinical experience of late has been very limited because I don't use it. <laughs> um, for platelet-rich plasma, um, again, a very topical and controversial area where there's a lot of emerging evidence, much of which is low quality, and I've been fortunate enough to work on a, a large RCT with collaborators in Melbourne, which the results will come out relatively soon looking at platelet-rich plasma. The, you know, if we do meta-analyses of platelet-rich plasma, the results look positive, but again, the existing studies are of low quality, so it's very hard to come out with a firm recommendation, but optimistic that that may be another tool in our armamentarium, cognizant again of costs. Uh, these are not cheap. Now, you've been presenting at a podiatry conference, and of course, a lot of uh, podiatry patients uh, do have osteoarthritis, and they might be coming to see us about a range of different foot problems, but they may ask us about um, osteoarthritis affecting their other joints. Now, they could also be taking a whole range of different things that they've um, got from their pharmacy, different supplements, you know, glucosamine, fish oils, those sorts of things. What's the current state of play on these? Are these effective or are they simply expensive placebos? Yeah, very, very common. So, you know, over 50% of our patients are taking some form of supplement. More often than not, we don't find out about it unless you ask about it. And it oftentimes equates to a substantial out-of-pocket cost for many people in the order of about $1,800 a year that they spend on supplements for their osteoarthritis. We did an analysis of all of the supplements that are used in osteoarthritis, and we published that back in the British Journal of Sports Medicine back in 2018, for those of you that are particularly interested in that. Um, and you know, the most common supplements that are used, uh, glucosamine, chondroitin, uh, don't have a clinically meaningful benefit over and above placebo uh, in well-done trials. There are a number of other supplements that are increasingly used for osteoarthritis, and there I'm going to include names that people may never have heard of, like uh, pycnogenol, uh, boswellia, uh, curcumin, so a turmeric abstract, um, that do appear to have modest to large effects in clinical trials. But unfortunately, again, the, the trials are of pretty low quality, so it's very hard to come out with a firm recommendation advocating for these. But on the basis of that, we're trying to develop a better evidence base around the use of some of those supplements by doing trials on those ourselves to see whether they're effective or not. I think it's really important to point out that most of the trials that have been done using supplements are focused on knee osteoarthritis, some on hip and very few on hand. Haven't seen a hell of a lot done on feet at this point in time. So it's really hard to uh, draw a long bowstring and see where they land as far as feet osteoarthritis are concerned. I'm just going to change direction a little bit here. Um, I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you're a runner or have been a runner in the past, and you also have knee osteoarthritis yourself. I saw you report that in a presentation recently. So it's very personal to you. Where do you stand on the whole risks and benefits of running for joint health? 
do. I, I used to run a lot more than I do now. I used to do a lot of triathlons as a younger man, but um, I still run occasionally. I usually don't run on hard surfaces when I run, um, but I'm still, still very active. Um, I do a lot of uh, swimming, cycling, kayaking. So a lot, a lot of sports that involve a, a lot lower impact because I do find that if I run on hard surfaces on a regular basis, I, I tend to end up with um, a sore knee. Um, but most of the time, I'm, I'm generally very well. But I think in terms of evidence, not necessarily just my own anecdotal experience, uh, the best current evidence would suggest that running is not a risk factor for the development of osteoarthritis, as I think most people in the community would generally believe. Uh, and so there's no good clear evidence to suggest that running is likely to be deleterious and that your joint only has a limited number of steps that it can take in its lifetime. For people who have osteoarthritis and run, my advice differs a little bit from that. So, you know, if they can tolerate running and they're not getting flares associated with running and they're biomechanically in a good position to do so, I don't discourage them from running. But I do encourage caution uh, and to make sure that they do recognise uh, flares or exacerbations of their symptoms that they may get with excessive loading um, because we know that they do occur and we know that uh, flares, uh, exacerbations of symptoms and, um, and in particular uh, persistent swelling are likely to be deleterious to their joint longer term. So no good evidence to suggest that running is deleterious, but for a person that has osteoarthritis, be aware that high loading high impact loading uh, and or excessive amounts of weight through their joint potentially could be uh, contributing to both exacerbations of symptoms as well as uh, ongoing structural deterioration. So just be cautious about it. Now we've touched very briefly on, on foot osteoarthritis so far. Um, do you see many patients with uh, foot osteoarthritis in your practice and how do you manage them? Because as you know, that's hardly any evidence around for foot osteoarthritis compared to other joints such as the knee Yeah, so I do see quite a lot of foot osteoarthritis, both on its own, but also in the context of someone who's got more generalised osteoarthritis. Um, my approach in the first instance is usually uh, broadly consistent with the way I've managed osteoarthritis elsewhere. So I tend to focus very much on educating them about the disease, uh, why it's happened in the first place, talking to them about the importance of um, their weight, uh, which can contribute to joint symptoms ir irrespective of where that joint is located. The, the, the foot and the hand obviously included in that conversation. Talk to the important uh, about the importance of staying active, uh, continuing to try to do exercise, again, potentially focusing on lower impact forms of exercise. And then tend to focus very much on uh, the posture and the alignment of the feet, what they tend to do as far as physical activity is concerned, what they wear on their feet. And I'm really fortunate to to work in a multidisciplinary environment and work obviously very closely with a, a number of different podiatrists who are very helpful uh, in managing uh, my patients who have foot osteoarthritis. So don't try and do it all on my own, but try to focus on a more Holistic, holistic aspects of management and then work closely from a mechanical perspective uh, with uh, podiatrists to help foster optimal foot position for those people that do have osteoarthritis of the foot, wherever it might be, whether it's the first MTP, the tail and joint, the ankle, wherever it might be. 
Excellent. Now that leads really nicely into the next question, which is related to the theme of the conference, which is innovation and collaboration. Now, given that osteoarthritis is a, is a complex condition, there's a lot of lifestyles or risk factors that may dispose to it. It does seem to be the case that it would lend itself pretty nicely to a multidisciplinary approach. Now, do you think that that is actually happening enough in clinical practice or could it be improved? Completely agree, Hilton, that we need a much stronger multidisciplinary uh, approach towards this disease. Uh, in direct response to your question, I completely agree it's not happening enough. I'm spoiled in that I work in a strongly multidisciplinary environment. And my clinic in osteoarthritis, I work alongside uh, physiotherapists, uh, dietitians, occupational therapists, uh, people who provide psychological support, pediatric and orthotic support. Um, and so I work in an environment to help really foster the many aspects that a person will present with that need more than what I can provide, whether that be around uh, weight management, whether it be around exercise support, psychological management, uh, mechanical uh, approaches and devices and, and interventions in and around the feet. And, you know, I guess just anecdotally, but I think also what we're increasingly finding from our data is that, you know, if you've got a person who's depressed, uh, morbidly obese, or has some other comorbidity that's going alongside their osteoarthritis, and you don't pay any attention or try to intervene on that, your ability to make meaningful change to their care is oftentimes largely mitigated by uh, the other comorbidities that they're likely troubled by. So it's incredibly important. We're not doing it enough. Um, and I'd strongly encourage people out there to try to work much more strongly in a multidisciplinary environment if they can. Excellent. Okay. Into our last question here, David. Very nicely. Uh, now, due to COVID-19, this conference will be held virtually. Again, now, I think we're all used to that from last year. There's lots of uh, international conference cancellations. Uh, there's benefits and, and, and sort of disadvantages to the virtual format. But to keep it positive, what do you think are the advantages of a virtual conference compared to a face-to-face -face conference? I think, you know, for, for people who are attending this virtually, hopefully they can do it in the comfort of their own home or their, or their office and that doesn't require a lot of travel. So I think for them, there's a hell of a lot more convenience. I think in addition to that, and what I'm increasingly finding is that people are, I think, happier to post questions online in the chat box and chat function than they would be in approaching a microphone at a typical conference. Um, I think the other advantage... Uh, for me, at least, is that it reduces a um, very busy tra travel schedule. Um, and so it does it means I don't have to travel as far. I'm oftentimes a lot more willing to talk at conferences that I might otherwise not talk at. Um, and so, for example, towards the end of last year, I think I was talking in, you know, a different country every week uh, where I otherwise wouldn't necessarily be able to do that uh, very simply without uh, trying to compromise my lifestyle and my sleeping habits. So I think there's a lot of advantages. Um, I think there's a lot of potential interactions that we don't uh, get face-to-face -face that we may get more online. Um, and, uh, you know, I think from the viewpoint of the carbon load on the environment and the travel schedule that otherwise conferences tend to, tend to build up, I think there's that advantage as well. So lots of pluses. Definitely a lot of negatives in terms of 
inhibiting collaborations and networking and stuff like that. But I think there is definitely a lot of upside here as well. Excellent. Thank you very much. Uh, that's, that's all my service. And that's where we wrap up today's episode. Our thanks to Professors Hilton Menz and David Hunter for their time and a reminder to those interested in the Australian Podiatry Conference from July 3 to 17 that you can find the program, speakers and registration details at www.podiatry.org.au. As always, we welcome your feedback and requests for podcast topics. Email your requests and feedback on any topics you might like to hear to info at podiatry.org.au. And don't forget to check out podiatry.org.au for ongoing updates on a range of topics for podiatrists. Bye for now. 